Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 102 of Caro Pop, sponsored by Revolution Brewing. Our guest this week is an accomplished jazz pianist, R&B artist, singer, songwriter, composer, musical director, and professor, Patrice Russian. Her most famous song is the undeniable 1982 hit single, Forget Me Nots, which earned her a Grammy nomination for Best Female R&B Vocal Performance and has had a long afterlife. Its music is the basis of Will Smith's 1997 smash hit, Men in Black. George Michael's single, Fast Love, also borrows and credits Russian's groove. And in 2021, Forget Me Nots was all over TikTok in a viral dance challenge. How does she feel about all of that? But Forget Me Nots is just the tip of the iceberg for the multi-talented Russian who was enrolled in a University of Southern California music program at the age of three and began studying piano soon after. She learned classical music, then jazz, and after she performed at the Monterey Jazz Festival as a 17-year-old, the jazz label Prestige signed her to a recording contract. But by the time she recorded her third Prestige album, Shout It Out, she was following her muse in funkier directions. Terms such as jazz, R&B, dance music, and quiet storm had no meaning for her. As she describes here, she was applying her deep knowledge and soul to making the music from her heart. She moved to Electra Records and Haven't You Heard from her 1979 album Pizzazz became her first international hit. Look Up from 1980's Posh was another dance hit. And then came her most popular and acclaimed album, Straight From The Heart, in 1982. Not only does it lead off with Forget Me Nots, but it includes Remind Me, a groove ballad also sampled many times, and the Grammy-nominated instrumental, Number One. The folks at Elektra must have been excited when they first heard that album, right? Russian sets the record straight and describes her dance floor strategy for getting that music out. She also details her work with synths on the follow-up album, Now, which launched the dance hit Feel So Real, Won't Let Go. And she tells why she stepped away from making albums after signing with Clive Davis and Arista for Watch Out, which came out in 1987. She still had movie scores to compose and television shows to music direct, including the Emmy Awards and the Grammy Awards. And she's chair of the popular music program at USC, now in her 11th year of teaching there. As she puts it, I'm the one who can weep at James Brown or Brahms. She has worked with a lot of legends, and she is one herself. Please enjoy this Carol Pop conversation with Patrice Russian. How long have you been teaching popular music at the University of Southern California? This is my 11th year. The program itself is 13 years old. Okay. So and I was there kind of early at the beginning. The students, and, and, and I don't know whether they're, they're the same now as they were when you started, but do they come in with sort of a different way of listening to and processing music than, you know, sort of what you related to as someone growing up listening to music when you were a kid? I'll tell you what's different, uh, if anything, Mark, what's different is that their spirit and their orientation to music is the same. Heightened even because they're listening all of the time. 
you know, the, what's different is that it is not a given that in the schools where they have elementary school, middle school, and even high school, it's, it's not a given that they had a music program. Mm. See, when I was going to school, even if you were playing on little blocks, there was music as part of your education in one way, in one form or fashion. You leaned into a major in high school, but there was at least a choir or a band or an orchestra or something like that. You can't say that about the schools now. So they're getting their information from, you know, the Internet, from YouTube, blah, blah, blah. And they, if they make it to the university level and want to major in this, they're coming at it with a, a passion that's like serious. And they know that now if they don't want to check the box of a jazz, of, of studying jazz or they don't want to check the box of studying classical music, that they're not relegated to just that, that there are institutions where they can receive a very high quality education and be able to amass the kinds of skills that allow the, for them to be able to go to work in that particular sector uh, of the contemporary music palette, which is, you know, as you know, really wide and has everything in it from music therapy to acousticians who build studios to people who are, you know, music manufacturers to record company people and industry people, publishing people, uh, journalists, writers and songwriters, bass players, guitar players, drummers, da 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 da. OK. And that the kind of careers that these kids want allows them to intersect with I may be a bass player, but I, I, I have written a song in my life. So worst case, I'm a better bass player because of it. Best case, I might be able to help with, collaborate on a song. And there's all these kinds of other things that are happening now on the basis of institutions that want to really involve themselves as USC Thornton has been allowed to really offer a curriculum that makes it such that when they leave us with their degree, they not only have the musical knowledge that you would expect of anybody who went to college and majored in something, having that body of knowledge, but they also have these particular skills to be able to go right to work. And they do. So um, it's been nice to be on the ground floor of the development of that. What is also interesting is that I think part of the success of those kinds of programs is that the people who are teaching are practitioners of that, not transplants from something else to that, but did that, did popular music, did have those kinds of ties both in and out of the classroom that allowed them to stay current and relevant and to be able to offer the information that the students need and uh, do it in such a way that also offers a certain kind of historical context and social context to put it in so that they also leave with a certain responsibility of its maintenance after they're out of school. Have you been inspired by any of the students to look at anything new? All the time. You can't help but be in a when you're in a songwriting class and people are studying, you know, form and figuring out ways in which their lyric content has the same kind of strength and validity as a Stevie Wonder tune or as a Carole King tune or something like that, or Beatles or something like that. When you, when they are picking that and breaking that apart in order to dissect it again, they start thinking of the people that they're listening to. And sometimes they can find some of those same threads or same traits. And then sometimes they don't and know that they got to invent it if they're looking 
for a career that lasts more than 15 or 20 minutes. So the idea is that, no, there's constantly uh, that kind of conversation, how what has happened in the past informs the present, which inspires the future. So, um, yeah, they're always turning me on the stuff and I'm always turning them on the stuff. A lot of times they think something is brand new. I say, okay, so wait a minute, check this. And they'll listen and go, oh my God, you know, I didn't know. I said, well, then there you go. Or there'll be something where they'll tell me, you're trending on TikTok. And I'm like, well, what's that? <laughs> and oh, then so, so that's how you found out you were trending on TikTok was the students? Kids, kids at school. Do you know you're trending on TikTok? I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> so it's all it's awesome because there's that. And the real payoff is seeing them take in the kinds of information that makes them very, very much informed in a different way than if they just went out there. They're talented people and they were going to be OK, but they're informed differently, which is what's supposed to happen when you go to higher education. Right. You're supposed to be informed in such a way that you get to where you're trying to go a little sooner because you're standing on some firm information and firm ground. And so these kids are going out and they're doing things. So I've some of my students are out with Taylor Swift right now. Wow. And doing, you know, with, and with George Benson or with Paramore, with Demi Lovato. So they're getting opportunities based upon the fact that the curriculum that we are offering continues to be massaged constantly so that the, 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 the students come in and, they, and they're coming in in some ways, they come in stronger than when we first started because they have the other students' successes to be able to say, oh, I, I want to be like that. So I got to start there. So they're coming in very excited and strong and we hope to inspire, continue to inspire that. Yeah. And it sounds like you're energized by it too and kind of kept current oh, yeah. on everything. Oh, for sure. For sure. It has been really interesting to see how much stuff that I took for granted um, now really pays off in terms of what I've seen or what I know. And um, they teach me a lot too. You know, when you teach, you learn. Are you someone who writes when you have a project or do you just write and create whenever you feel like it? Um, I, I would prefer to just write to be writing, but most of the time it's when there's a project or something like that, that, that comes up, but it varies. But I would say more than not a project or a deadline is the best way to get me motivated. Do you have a project or deadline right now? I do. I'm working on a um, a piece for jazz violinist Regina Carter that's been commissioned by the Library of Congress. Ooh. So I'm uh, working on that. I'm supposed to try to get it to her by early January for premiere uh, sometime in the spring. So working on that. So when you're working, how does that how does that work? Do you sit down at like at a computer at a keyboard with a pen and paper with a computer screen? Oh. <laughs> well, it's still easiest and best for me, I think, to imagine the sound. That I, I mean, I studied for a long time to be able to imagine the sound of what I was writing for and then be able to put it down. And way before there was software and, uh, you know, computers that helped helped us uh, do that, I, it was pencil and paper. So that's still actually the for me, one of the fastest ways to be able to get the ideas out. And then I'll ultimately uh, go to the computer to clean it up, you know, to clean up right. the, the manuscript. We don't have to write that by hand anymore. Now we can put it on the score and make it look nice and neat. And copyist that I used to use, he says, OK, don't send me any more handwritten scores because we end up having to input them anyway. 
into the digital realm. So I learned how to do that, but I still do sketches and stuff on paper. Where does this imagining take place? Do you have like special spaces you go or do you want to sort of open here. up? Or? <laughs> In here, usually, you know, just close the door and lock up. And and if I'm working on something specific, but, you know, the inspiration for things comes from a lot of different places. It could be at any point, at any time. The key is to, if there's a great idea or a good idea to uh, find a way to be able to get back to it, because typically it doesn't happen necessarily on command. So sometimes you'll be doing something completely non sequitur to the to the music and that's when an idea might happen and then oh i got i was washing dishes do i need to put that down and go you know <laughs> you have that moment of right hey, i gotta try to remember this but i'm in the middle of something else and by the time i dry my hands put the knife down that i'm washing and put it away and dry my hands have i forgotten the idea so it varies so do you have a phone full of voice memos of you like singing little changes in their melodies or something? I have a few. Yeah, <laughs> I have a few. I got to put it somewhere. And usually I used to write, I would write it down. Sometimes I write it on a napkin or wherever I was, if I had access to a writing utensil and something to put it on. But now we have our phone. So uh, that, that that helps. Do you write down the notes you're hearing? Like when you imagine something, you know, like exactly what notes and chords and everything they are? I won't know necessarily everything. It come, you know, it's different. There's no one way. Sometimes you can't get it down fast enough. You get the whole thing for me. Other times it's, you know, a little bit more where you have to kind of work with something and figure out as you go. It's one of those things that I that I don't have a, a an, an exact formula. Right. I read that you learned to play piano when you were three. Do you remember a time when you didn't know how to play piano? Yeah, I actually started piano when I was five. I was okay. enrolled in a special music class, though, uh, when I was three. And in this music class, it was called Eurythmics. It was actually a music education graduate course for college students to take to observe young children. This was as that idea and development of early early childhood development in all areas, but in particular in the arts, was starting to... Be, become a thing. So USC had this program, a preparatory department, they called it. And little kids from ages like three to about five could be enrolled in this class called Eurythmics. And we were being observed and monitored by these college kids who were, you know, working on their masters or whatever and watching what kinds of aptitudes these kids had towards music, how much they could actually absorb, how much they were hearing the same things, how much they could learn, how far you could push them, how to motivate on a little kid's level conversations that they could begin to see, quantify, I guess, all of these different pieces of data about how they were learning stuff. So we, I remember waving scarves and moving around the music mm. a lot. We had running notes and skipping notes and happy chords and sad chords and later they translated that into musical terminology quarter notes eighth notes dotted 16th you know dotted eighth notes 16th whatever they you know and by the time the kids were like five the idea was to introduce them to an instrument and wow. i was introduced to the piano and said okay and uh that's when i started playing and um been playing ever since. 
Did your parents sign you up for that because they sensed that you had a talent or gift or interest in music? Or was it that they wanted to instill in you an interest in music and then everything took off? Uh, they actually were told about it from, uh, well, I was in a nursery school for about three or four years. There's six years difference between my younger sister and I. So I was, my parents both worked and they had me in a nursery school program and was the teacher there who noticed that anytime we did any kind of activity that involved music, singing, dancing, moving to music, that this was when I would be really, really perky in the class, you know? So she told my parents about this program because she knew of it and uh, said, you know, Patrice might be a candidate to to be involved in this and it might be kind of cool. So my parents were like, oh, OK, and took me uh, took me there. And uh, I stayed in that program all the way through my teens. And uh, I had my my piano teachers. I had two piano teachers inside of that program, a theory teacher inside of that program and it was very gradual very methodical the idea of was the development of comprehensive musicianship so i was in that program until i was uh about 17. you have people whether they were sort of the original college kids or people involved in it who kind of kept tabs on your career after that and and really sort of trace you as like wow look look what happened with patrice you know she did this program and now there she is well, there were other kids in the program, too, and some of them were older and some of them were around my age. One of my best friends is pianist composer Billy Childs, and we met when we were about 12. Wow. In, I was maybe 13 in that in that program. Shared some of the same piano teachers. Definitely shared the same theory, introduction to theory and harmony through that program. Older than me, but we had the same piano teacher, and I would see him go in and out because he'd end his lesson and I'd go for mine. And that was conductor Michael Tilson Thomas. Okay. I would see him go in and out. There was a wonderful flautist named Thaddeus Watson. There's a, a film composer named Nathan Wong. There were quite a few people that I interacted with, you know, just who were also at various stages of uh, the same program. Does this program still exist? Do they still bring little kids in and do this? It exists, but it exists now at the Colburn School. R.D. Colburn bought, I guess, the idea and the school was renamed uh, the Colburn School. And it's in downtown Los Angeles, right across the street from the Disney Hall, where uh, Philharmonic, the home of the Philharmonic, L.A. Phil. So it's now the Colburn Performing Arts School. It also has become a college and you know conservatory so it's grown continued to grow uh since that time but the but the first aspects of that were still developing places for kids to be able to study uh study music and uh, performing arts did you learn classical first and then move into jazz or how did that what was sort of the evolution of the styles you learned um, I think that there's certain instruments where you're not going to escape learning the instrument vis-a-vis classical music and piano right. like that. The tradition of studying piano doesn't uh, almost doesn't allow for you to bypass classical music. Right. So I did that for a long time. But see, at home, the whole time, I'm hearing all kinds of other music, too. So it was when I was a little kid and it was hard to compartmental, you know, hard to compartmentalize exactly what was happening but i think i thought that the music that i was learning how to play the piano that was this kind of music and then other and then there was all this other stuff that i heard all the time on the radio 
or on television or watch people dancing to. All music, but the applications of it were a little bit different. The music that you heard in the church, the music that you heard at home, the music that you heard at a party, the music that you heard your friends play, and then this music that you were learning to be able to play this instrument. And it, I was probably in my uh, uh, early teens when it felt like there was the uh, idea that there was this connection between all of these styles that I kind of liked and started using some of the techniques that I had developed playing classical music to address some of the music that I was hearing on the radio and learning to do that too. And then in high school, by the time I got to high school, I think I had enough of a vocabulary musically to then want to lean in a little bit more to improvisation and composition. And so jazz was definitely right. on that. Do you remember the first song that you heard either on a record or on the radio that you loved and thought, I need to figure out how to play that? Wow. No, I don't remember the first one. There were so many <laughs> that I really liked and just wanted to try to I pick it out by ear, you know, figure out what was happening. And then part of it is a very practical application is that it was kind of cool to be able to be in a practice room and suddenly I'm playing something that everybody recognized because we all heard it on the radio. Right. So, so that, you know, it wasn't until a little bit later that I, you know, I think by the time I really got serious about what I wanted to do with music, I, but I always had this feeling that I wanted to write. I don't know why, you know, a composition really was, it attracted me early. I didn't know what the path was to get there, but I really liked putting things together, making stuff up, you know, um, but I wanted to know what I was doing because I wanted to make stuff up for film and television. I wanted to do that very early. I said, I want to, I want to write a music like that for things like that. And, uh, you know, it took a long time to develop the way in which I was going to amass a certain part of that skill set. But I think everything that I did contributed to being able to just communicate through music in whatever ways I could. And I really did enjoy collaboration very, very much. What were sort of early pieces of music that you loved, whether it was songs or something from a film or something like that? More than film. For me, it was television. The themes. Mm. You know, how you could be in the kitchen making a sandwich and a certain show would come on. Oh, such and such, such, such is on. You could just hear the theme and know oh, the whole character and the way in which the theme had to offer a certain kind of oral illustration of what the show was about. I thought I was fascinated by how does, how does that happen? You know, how, how does a person know what to do? And then that becomes another character of the visual elements that you, that you appreciate about, about a show. Like it's another character. I really was attracted to that. I watched a lot of television because I was never without television. So I, I watched a lot of TV and, um, the radio was always on, so I was always hearing all kinds of music. And my parents belonged to a record club, so every month, you know, we get these deliveries of albums, and the albums varied from Frank Sinatra to Brahms to Miles Davis to Ella Fitzgerald to James Brown. You know, I I would just hear these records back to back uh, as my parents would, you know, had music in the house just as part of the environment. 
So they weren't musicians, but they had a lot of appreciation of music, obviously. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. They weren't musicians, but always loved music, always supported the idea of that as a means by which, um, you know, it was something bigger than yourself that you could, that was expressed with a certain energy, fortitude and excellence. Did you always think that music was something you were going to go into as like a life, as a profession, as opposed to something you did while you also studied to be something else? I was always attracted to the arts, I think. And the two things that attracted me most were dance and music. But I wasn't as good at dancing. So so music went out. At what point did you think singing would be part of what you did, too, as opposed to playing? It was always part of it. See, I don't separate it. I don't I think my orientation as a as an instrumentalist, I didn't separate. I, I used to get a little I used to wonder why singers weren't offended when people would say the musicians and then the singers. I'm like, well, hold up. Singers are musicians. Right. They use this. That's their instrument. So I like to sing. I always liked to sing, but it was more of utilize, utilizing that instrument to offer another way to get to musical ideas, a way to communicate an idea or the way to accentuate or illustrate an idea. It was one more instrument in the toolbox of instruments in order to, to convey an idea. Singing itself now, learning the, the, the mechanics and the mechanisms of singing in order to enhance, uh, you know, your ability to do so wasn't something that I that I pursued for quite a long time. I just liked to sing and knew some basic stuff and could sing in tune and, you know, being able to read music and follow pitch and all of this kind of stuff. And I enjoyed that sound of, you know, the sound of the voice and then all the instruments of trying to get to the sound of the human, human voice anyway. So it was a, an added benefit to, to have opportunities to sing. But in terms of considering myself a singer per se, that wasn't, that wasn't what I was lo lo looking for. Right. I mean, when you think of compositions, like in the jazz world, you often, a lot of the times it doesn't have vocals attached to it. Whereas if you think of songwriting in the, you know, R&B, soul, funk, pop, whatever worlds, then often, sure, you know, people would play and they would sing. And Aretha Franklin sang, but she also played, you know, the piano on a lot of these songs and Elton John or Billy Joel, or nobody sort of thinks twice about the fact that they're singing and performing. And I think maybe it's coming out of the jazz world, the sense of, oh, those are compositions as opposed to songs. You know, that's like, well, I don't know, because Carmen McRae played piano and Sarah Vaughn really played. She played yeah. too. So, you know, it's very few people that I, that I came across that I didn't know also played an instrument. Did you study voice at some point or did you not really you just knew how to sing? Well, I knew, you know, enough to know that it would be a good idea so that I could protect my instruments off. I was a music education major in, in college. So you had to learn a little bit about a lot of things because you might have to teach it at some point. It wasn't really until then that I paid attention in that way in terms of being able to study more about the mechanism of the voice, more about how it operates, more about how it works, how to take care of it and so on and so forth. Up to that point, I was singing um, again as just, you know, an illustration of what I wanted to maybe convey, you know, uh, musically. And, uh, you know, happened that one of the gifts that I had was that it was 
a pleasant enough voice to be able to get those points across as they needed to be. Right. So when you started recording albums, what was your, what were you aiming at? Were you thinking like, I'm going to make a jazz record? Did, did categories matter to you at that point? Was it just like, I'm going to make my music and people can figure out what it is? Uh, I started making albums in like 72, 73, 73, I think. And um, that was a jazz label. They heard me at a jazz festival. They signed somebody that I think they that they felt confidently was going to be able to offer what they saw when they heard me play at the Monterey Jazz Festival. And I needed money to go to school. And while I was not necessarily bowled over with the idea of starting to make albums, because I didn't feel like I was ready for any of that, I was given this small deal with a lot of latitude. And uh, I just wanted to do a good record. And the compositions, it gave me an opportunity to write. It gave me an opportunity to play with some of my friends and heroes early, early, early on. So this kind of helped to set up the idea that uh, anything is possible, you know, as long as you get at the truth of what it is and that there's a part of that that resonates with what you're about, that it didn't, the categories didn't matter. Right. And you started recording for Prestige Records. How many sort of albums in did you feel like you got before you were making more of the music that, that you sort of wanted to make, you know, in your heart? Not that that other music wasn't in your heart, but that, that this was sort of you becoming more the musician you thought you were going to be or wanted to be. You know, it's not like there was a turning point in all of that. It was the opportunity to be able to use different aspects of my musical personalities. Plural. That one required a certain being at that time for what I was doing in that situation. It required certain things of me that kind of helped me grow to other possibilities as well. So it just kept increasing. Each one helped the other one. I don't know that I could have done the albums that I ended up doing with Elektra had I not done the the albums I did with Prestige because each one allowed me to do something a little bit different that added to the idea that had already been planted in my head at five years old. It was about comprehensive musicianship. I didn't know what I was going to do with any of specifically. I didn't set out and say, I'm going to be a concert pianist or I'm going to be a this or I'm going to be a that. The only thing that I knew were the things about the thing, the bigger thing, the artistry, the bigger thing. Only thing that I knew for sure is what I liked. And what I liked doing was becoming more and more a thing to be able to do. And as I got more opportunities to do that, then because I had figured out that I loved composition and I loved the sound of the orchestra and things like that, well, I needed to, I wanted strings. And so, okay, well, uh, write them. My teacher said, well, then write the strings. Write it, do it. Oh, I need I need horns would be great. Then learn to write them. And so each opportunity gave each time I did something, I had an opportunity not only to make records, but also to grow in my own uh, skill and practice, you know, because I had the op- the chances to do that. And I, grace of God that I was left to do it. You know, I don't know that it, it represents quite the same thing now. A lot of times the recordings, you know, are monitored very closely by a committee of people who make a, a lot of decisions. In my case, from the very beginning, I was always given a very, a lot of latitude. 
And uh, I was able to use that to my advantage. Yeah, your third album on Prestige was shouted out and starts off with The Hump, which is, you know, very danceable. It's pretty far away from, you know, traditional jazz at that point. It's very catchy. And you still have these cool changes in it and everything. And you're playing like five different types of keyboards on that record. And, and so it seems like things are sort of opening up there. And then you move to Electra, and then your first album was just called Patrice. And it's like, here I am. And now here's this new version of me or a progression of what you'd been doing. Did you have sort of thoughts of like, stardom at that point like was there sort of a career you wanted to have as opposed to you know just being about the music but also kind of some ambition there well i think if there's any ambition is that you want to try to do good work whatever you do you want to try to do good work no it was too late i was already so steeped in the music that i didn't really initially understand the other stuff that goes along with the whole fame or stardom moment that wasn't what I, I I was seeking. Now, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing because there's some pluses to being famous and all of that, but that's a, it requires some other work. Right. It requires some other knowledge. It requires some other things that for a very long time, I didn't like resist those things, but where my focus was, was on the music first all the time. The other parts that came from that came from the knowledge that other people appreciated what it was that I was offering and that the opportunities to be able to offer it more often and better and live would come from the idea of selling more records. In other words, we will give you tour support to go out and play and do these things, but you've got to sell enough records to justify the tour support. Right. Oh, that's different than I'm just going to put up to this music out and just see the purpose now was about being able to go do more music. That's the way it was then. It's different now. But the way it was then, especially for black artists, is you didn't it tour support was not automatic. You had to amass a certain amount of sales. They had to look a certain way. And then you could go out and, 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 and make the music in front of people. So so for me, there was always a means to an end in terms of growing the idea of being able to do more. And because part of what I was also gifted with was the understanding that it was possible for the music that I was doing to communicate in that way also, in a way that made people want to feel good and get on the dance floor or in a way that made people want to sing along or that made people want to play. And I didn't have to sacrifice an artistic aesthetic to do it. Right. But once I knew that I was also hitting a certain wall because of the other things that go along with the idea of more and more people hearing your music, then some of the energy had to shift to, okay, well, how can, how can more people hear it? How can I get out there to play it more often? How can people, once videos became popular, how can I get to do one? What do I have to do to be able to get to that, that point, you know, but the music was always first. I'm glad it was because today, you know, there's the distraction of feeling like you got to have so much data and numbers and, streams right. and stuff like that you know it's like whoa can you learn to play first you know so, <laughs> so, so we were anyway it, it worked out 
Yeah, when you sign up with a label like Electra, like they definitely want to make you a star because then they think they're going to sell more records that way. Was there pressure from the label to sort of work more on those areas that you didn't really want to work on because you want to just concentrate on the music? No, Electra at that time, they were just looking for a way to be able to, you know, they had already been very highly, highly successful. You know, they had the Eagles and they had Linda Ronstadt and they had Motley Crue. And I think it became more of a corporate idea that they as a small boutique label invest in the idea of what seemed to be coming around, which was this idea that there were jazz musicians who were young enough to whereas certain other R&B or pop stars were a part of their natural vocabulary. So I was signed around the time that Grover Washington Jr. was signed, that Lenny White and Peanut Butter, that group was signed, that Dee Dee Bridgewater was signed, Lee Rittenauer was signed, and also Donald Byrd and the Blackbirds. Yeah, I was wondering about Donald Byrd. He's been around longer and, you know, and was known for pop and everything and then had all those Mizell Brothers records in the 70s where the so-called jazz purists were alarmed, but everyone else were like, these are great records and these are really fun. So um, I think that that's what they were going for. They were going yeah. for trying to use that part of the larger corporate group to see if they can experiment with this thing that became sort of they coined it Quiet Storm for a while. And, you know, uh, they had all kind of names. We're just doing the music that we like. And uh, for me, it was it was great. Because, see, I'm, I'm the one who can weep at James Brown or Brahms. You know? <laughs> there are certain aspects of music that you think of as like you need to have a certain amount of knowledge. And then there's also music where you're like, it just want to makes you move. And I want you to like, it's like music that's going to make your body want to do stuff. Did you come at it always sort of wanting to engage both of sort of the head and the heart and the body and all that? Or did you sort of at some point think, you know what, I really like, I really like making people dance on top of all these cool changes that I got in my music. It's one thing. I don't know where people get the idea that, uh, that one requires knowledge and the other one doesn't. <laughs> no, I think they both they, require knowledge. They, but, both, but, they but, both do. They both require a lot of information. It's a, it takes a lot to move somebody. It takes yeah. a lot. There's certain information perhaps that is not necessarily learned in the same way or hasn't received the same kind of quote unquote loftiness or legitimacy or whatever word you'd like to use. But the idea is, no, there's information and language and history and a lineage that one can actually trace and study to be able to understand why certain music became as popular as it became. And I think that people who were able to kind of tap into not only certain kinds of natural instincts, but also be able to understand those those elements, you know, are some of the people that I think their music to, stands up, you know, 40 and 50 and 60 years later. And typically those same people listened to a lot more than the thing that they did. Which, so they're taking information, valuable information and nuanced pieces of information and applying it creatively, which allows for the music to be able to speak generationally uh, 
further and further. I mean, you know, a lot of people don't know that all the guys that played on the Motown records that, that, that are still being played today, they were jazz musicians. So they had this vast language of that. And when they got ready to do what they were doing for a specific purpose, the mastery was in what they didn't play. Right. What they chose to play, how they chose to make that work for a purpose that was different than maybe what they would do when they were playing a gig at, at a club or something like that. That's the mastery in it. So I think that knowing that gave me like mad permission to be able to know that, you know, if you have the capacity to be able to communicate with people and you have multiple ways of expression, do it. Hmm. And I had, I had people examples of that. Every time I turned around, I had examples of that. I had examples of that working with my seeing miles Davis talking with people who work. I've worked with Wayne shorter. I worked with Sonny Rollins. I worked with Freddie Hubbard. I worked and knew, uh, all of these people, uh, Herbie Hancock, George Duke, Stevie Wonder, Smokey Robinson, Aretha. These are people who I met along the way. So my peer group, we wanted to be so amazing as musicians that we could work with Frank Sinatra or Michael Jackson. And some of us did. Right. And that was the idea. The idea was just to be able to make music that was meaningful to whoever wanted to hear it. And if they didn't have an opinion about it at all, even if it was bad, we're not doing our job. So we, we wanted to be that. And so now, you know, we're finding more openings, I guess, to be able to live out that expression. And those of us who are fortunate enough to have been in, involved in programs or, or, or in educational institutions that would allow for us to connect the dots. You know, now we have, you know, you know, like I mentioned, Billy, I would include myself in this category. People writing symphonic music and doing jazz or and have had hit and have had records perhaps that are associated with being hits. That's a big deal. And I think that it wasn't it wasn't we were trying to do anything other than to be about the music. I mean, when you're around those kinds of people all the time, when you when you see the formation of Earth, Wind and Fire, you know, Earth, Wind and Fire played my high school prom. No, I did not. They, a lot of, he, a lot of he, Chicago connections were those. They guys would too. rehearse. Okay, when they were an up and coming band, they knew our band director in my, at my high school, and sometimes they needed a place to rehearse. And they say, "Well, come on over to the school, and we'll let you in after school, and you guys can rehearse, and I'll have some of the kids help to carry, help help you guys carry your stuff in if you'll let them stay at the rehearsal and watch." Can you imagine how formative, how formative that was for me? Yeah. You know, so by the time they blew up, which happened to be very shortly after they played my prom, uh, and I've been friends with them for for a long time, watching the development of that and that band and all of the elements that came with that, knowing that Maurice had played with Ramsey Lewis and all this kind of, you know, it, it gave us permission, gave me permission. Just make, just do the music. Was it a joy, joyful experience for you to be on stage and see people get up and respond physically to what you're doing, dancing and everything? Yeah, because I had been them. I had been joyously dancing to some of the 
to people do I know what that felt like? And then when when I was the one generating that kind of joy or movement and communication, it was like still it's overwhelming. What were the songs that you wrote? I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of them where where you got to the end of it and you thought, oh, this is like this is it. You know, this is like the song that's going to make the whole world get up and dance and sing and everything else. No, we did the music that we that we felt good about. And that was that, you know. It wasn't until uh, I guess Forget Me Nots was was the, was the one where we said, you know what, we we should take this out over to some. I'd had some things that had done really well radio, you know, Hang It Up, Haven't You Heard, Settle for My Love. They had done really well, but it's like they didn't they didn't get past a certain point, and that certain point had to do with other things that were not musically generated, but more of the business of the hierarchy of who gets what at the, at the record company level. So we said, okay, well, before we turned in the album that Forget Me Nots and Number One are on, we took it to some clubs just to see. just Straight, straight from the heart, just to yeah, get it just, out there. We took, took it to a couple of places, had some friends who were DJs. Hey, when you finish this Michael Jackson tune, put this on just for a minute. If the floor clears, then you know, okay, well, nobody cares. If the floor stays full, okay, then mm -hmm. our instincts are correct. This People might like this. We kept hearing that people liked it, but we had that kind of tangible proof. So we turned it in. Record company didn't like it at all. They didn't hear it. It's like, gosh, okay. And well, you devastated for about 20 minutes, and then at least you know they're not going to go after this. So... Since we know out the box that's not going to happen, what are you going to do about it? And by this time, the relationships that we had with other artists, the relationships that I had with different people, they said, well, you know, there's a thing called independent promotion. And if you really feel like you want this to get in front of people and they've already given you the lukewarm answer or the answer that we had was like, we don't we don't hear it, then you're going to have to do something about it to get it in front of people. And so we put our little dimes and quarters together and we bought about three weeks of independent promotion just to get it to radio. And when it got there, boom, it took off. So when you played uh, forget me nots after the Michael Jackson at the club, it did not clear the dance floor. I assume it did not clear the people stayed on the floor. Yeah. And so we said, okay. And Electra heard that album and they said, Oh, there are no singles. Right. Mm -hmm. And it leads with forget me nots. And they thought, no, don't hear anything. Sorry. Yeah, I was told you should never try to co-produce your own records. I mean, it was like, oh, wow. <laughs> you know? were they, how are they not hearing it? I mean, in retrospect, you just listen to it and it's just kind of like one you know, undeniable you know, song after another. Was there something in the time where they just didn't, the sound of it was like too new to them or they just didn't, they just weren't paying attention? I don't really know. I don't really know. I didn't, and I didn't have time to try to figure out what their problem with it, with it was. You know, a lot of times the occupational hazard, I guess, of being in an administrative area. And I know this now from things that are not connected to music, but just how sometimes it happens is sometimes you get removed from the pulse of what is not only happening in the moment, but what's about to happen, what's about to shift, because you're managing what is and focused, therefore, on just what is and sometimes it gets out of hand and you only focus on what you did did before and so you keep trying trying to repeat that as opposed to using that to push forward you know 
And I guess that that was just one of those situations where they missed it. Antihero is Illinois' number one IPA once again. And to celebrate, Revolution Brewing is unveiling a new sports franchise, the Antiheroes. It features four limited edition collectible cans. The familiar green Antihero can is shifting to a rotating array of new looks, depicting the hero's total dominance across four sports football, hockey, basketball, and baseball. Collect all four starting this month and going through May of next year. To learn more, check out at RevBrewChicago on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. I mean, you had this nice run of these albums where you had Pizzazz in 1979 that just was re-released as a two-LP remastered set. And then you had Posh, which I got as a colored vinyl thing from Vinyl Me Please, speaking of record clubs. And then Straight From The Heart, which was like a featured one at, at Vinyl Me Please as well. Did oh, you wow. feel like those albums represented like a progression for you? Like, Did you feel like each one was kind of like stepping a little taller than the one before it? Yeah, I think every album is a snapshot of what's going, what what you're doing at the time. They're, I don't know that they're meant to be all, everyone is not meant to be necessarily the be all end all. I mean, it, that used to be part of the fun, right? Was to be sure. able to follow an artist's, you know, trajectory, assuming that the reason that you were signed was typically because there was something about what you were doing that warranted a certain kind of documentation and hopefully a certain kind of artistic development was also part of that longevity and part of that documentation. And so I like to think that, you know, each one was a snapshot of what I was dealing with at the time. You know, there were new instruments being created. There was a new technology that was coming in to have more colors in the box to play with. Certainly I had been out on tour developing more about what my connection to the audience was both sonically and also physically and all of these other kinds of things that were always in play all the time to help to inform what that was about. That's why I'm saying I'm glad that I came into the whole thing from the standpoint of the love of the music being the first and and, and, and the most primary part, because it takes a lot of energy and attention to set up and do those other parts. Right. And that those were some of the biggest lessons that came out of those albums. You know, it was a wonderful, wonderful time. It was a wonderful learning experience those years from you know late 70s early 80s you look back and there was so much great sort of dance music and dance pop coming out then there's also so much kind of time specific technology like around early 80s mid 80s like 84 so 84 uh you had an album now and then you were sort of experimenting more with synthesizers and like right now if you said if you played a song from 2012 or from 2022 you couldn't sort of say oh yeah that's from 2012 and that was from 2022, but like the 1984, the early 80s stuff, you know, and for that matter, 67, 68, 69, 70s, there, there was more of a sense of things progressing in a way that was almost sort of linear, like they're like new toys every year. Did you feel like it was that the music you were making was specifically kind of coming out of that time as well, because this is just sort of what was becoming available and you were being exposed to around then? Well, I was playing around with the different instruments and the different technology that was becoming more and more re readily available. I mean, my very first album has synthesizers on it. That song Puttered Popcorn is all. Oh, yeah. 
No, synthesizers have been around for a while when you recorded. Well, but they weren't available to everybody. That was one little tiny little box and you know, you're dialing in all kind of stuff. And, you know, now it's like you press a button and go. But by 84, it's like that's that's a sort of like one of the building blocks of so many of those records coming out. Yes, because by 84, the technology had grown to the point that they were more readily available. And then this thing called MIDI happened where we could take one particular instrument and be able to digitally control another. So you could play layered sounds, two and three things at the same time. And you had more access, you know, everybody was, you know, you, when the mini moves, you used to have to turn knobs or lights go out or there's a set change or something like that. And suddenly it's totally out of tune and you had to keep messing with it. Now the technology, the things were stabilizing in such a way where we could do all kinds of things. And typically, you know, um, because I was always interested in sonics and textures and things like that with different instruments, I saw this as being another way in which to add more colors to my palette. There was another thing that happened, though, at that time, and that was that the budgets went down. Mm. So now you got to choose sometimes between whether or not you're going to have live instruments or if it would be more cost efficient for you to to utilize other instruments. I was never a, a, a real fan of replacing people with machines, but to understand how it worked and to find I was looking for this wave for its integration. And uh, that album allowed me to be able to uh, record a, a significant amount of it, utilizing some of those instruments in order to learn that integration. So I had players and I had the sense and these different colors and sounds to be able to experiment with. And uh, I took that opportunity to do so. That was also my last album for Electra. Right. If I'm going to experiment, that would be the time. Right. So did your budget go down between Straight from the Heart and now? Yeah. Why? Everybody's budget went down because records had become not only expensive to make, but they had also be, you know, in terms of uh, studio time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And musicians cost, et cetera, that, uh, you know, and if you had to choose, do you want to go on tour and you want to support or you want to go in the studio and use orchestra? Decide. See, that's interesting because I always think about, you know, 84 as being kind of the peak of like the drum machines and the DX7s and all that stuff. But I, I'd never sort of made the connection that it, it could be linked to just record company budgets, too. It's like it's not. It, could, it, it, it was. Yeah. If you had it. No, no. Now, don't get me wrong. A lot of the sound and a lot of what happened was out of the, that sound became a thing that the ways in which people were making records where you needed you needed something that a beat or something like that that was relentless. Drum machines don't get tired. You don't have to take <laughs> breaks. You just turn it on and go. And if you don't have perhaps a situation where your music is completely flushed out when you get in the studio, by that time, see, don't forget, there's a lot of other things happening. It was starting to become a producer's medium also around that same time. Remember? Right. Mm -hmm. Remember, you might not be old enough to remember. I'm old enough, absolutely. Okay. So it became a produce, gradually became a producer's medium. So some producers would walk in the studio knowing exactly what they would want to do and be prepared, and some would not. Turn on the drum machine, turn turn the tape on, and let the tape roll, and let's just see what we get today. The different styles and ways in which people got to what it is that was the end result also changed, and some people were be able to capitalize on being able to have enough money to go in and just go. 
And other people, they they better be on point with exactly what they wanted to do because they had X amount of dollars to work with if they were also choosing to be able to tour and do this other, these other kinds of things. Then on top of all of that, you also had this crossover moment where there was this uh, marketing perception that a record needed to cross over into the pop charts to justify costs of the rising costs of touring and also video now. Right. So all of these things were like gradually, not, not all at once, but they were gradually kind of overtaking one another. And at any one time as an artist, you would be subject to any one of these new balancing points and balancing acts that you had to do. And then if you were black, you can add that on top of it. So, you know, there were a lot of things in play at all times in terms of exactly how it would go. So, yes, there were some people that would receive a lot of immediate help and some that had proving proving ground before they could get a certain kind of marketing, you know, meaningful marketing help. And then there were some who, you know, were so busy trying to cross over that their own individual, their own sound, their own truth might have been diluted or lost. And then there were some people that just didn't care. So, you know, they would just do what they did and hope for the best. So. So and then you were done with Electra and went over to Arista and uh, Clive Davis and made one album there. Watch out. Were you feeling more of all those pressures doing that record then? I didn't feel any pressure doing the record. The pressure for me came after the record was finished. And it's like, well, you know, we don't hear a hit. OK, well, the last time somebody told me that it worked out pretty well. <laughs> so I'll wait. And two and a half years later, I'm still waiting to hear what are we doing? So while it may have been, you know, a situation where people would feel like, you know, wow, that's the brass ring. You should grab it. You know, being able to observe it from a little bit of a distance and, you know, seeing exactly, you know, I mean, there's no doubt. And I would never say otherwise. Clive Davis was able to hear and and pick out the diamonds, the gems. He he knew what he wanted to do, but you know, to be able to do it the way he wanted to do it was, you know, there was a focus and it was like, you know, one or two at a time. You got to wait or maybe you're out of the way so that another one can get there, you know, who knows what the what the logic is, but there's there are finites on some of how things got done. And when I when it was clear that I was going to, for whatever reason, whatever reason, it wasn't my turn, I became impatient. And I said, you know, I don't know that I'm ever going to be what it is you want me to be if it requires this kind of waiting. So I asked to be released. So now came out in 84 and Watch Out came out in 87. So did you just record Watch Out right after now and it just sat for like two and a half years? Uh-huh. As soon when my deal was over with Clive had kind of started courting me just before the end of the electric years. I mean, it wasn't rocket science to know that the label had for whatever reason not been able to capitalize even on things that had been in quotes successful. And so, you know, he felt like he would know what to do. So I went there and I did, you know, you know, it took about six months, eight months or so before everything is done and such. But yeah, that album set. 
Yeah. And, and as someone who was prolific before then, I mean, you had eight albums come out over 10 years and also just that idea of artistic development, like the best, the best albums are the ones where someone's putting out, you know, the Stevie wonder albums one after the other. And, and uh, to have something sit for three years, like 84 to 87 feels like a lot changed musically in those years as well. Well, so. I changed, yeah. <laughs> you know, I changed. So that was, that was, that's reason enough, you know, I mean, you know, uh, I think the biggest the biggest compliment that he gave me was that he let me out. And then you did the score for Hollywood Shuffle not long after that. See, I had another I had a remember this was on you the said way. you had this you had this dream of doing. Music I was and, trying to be a film score. This scores. was just one of the wonderful, happy, ha- happy. Ac- not, I won't even call it an accident, just a, a wonderful, happy, related diversion sort of that I actually needed because I was trying to develop a wide enough vocabulary to be able to do anything. And as a film scorer, you definitely have to have that. I felt, I thought that capacity to be able to be that versatile, to be able to speak multiple dialects of music. So this learning to record, learning to play, learning to produce, learning to arrange, learning to orchestrate, all of that was coming out of these records too. It wasn't just purely putting out music so other people, there was things in it that were on the way to me becoming the musician that I wanted to be. And uh, I had something else to do, thank God. So Mm -hmm. when I'm waiting all of this time, I said, well, you know, maybe this is the time to kind of refocus. I wasn't really, you know, I I had seen what the business was about to the degree that I knew that if I keep doing that, I'm getting further from me, for me, further away from what it is that I enjoy about music. Now that was me. Other people were like, you know, you must be nuts. He's going to do this. He's going to do. And I'm sure that they're right. Except for that one part of me that where that was not the reward for me. That was not the most interesting for me. And this is no shade on everybody that, or anybody that decided to, you know, go that way and do exactly what it was that allowed for them to amass a certain kind of fame or a certain kind of notoriety or whatever like that. But it didn't interest me to that degree. So when I had a chance to kind of pull back, you know, I did and went into the other areas that allowed for me to then do music direction for television and composition, you know, film scoring, all these other kinds of things that I also like to do. You so, kept stretching in different ways, basically. Exactly. And you became the the musical director of the Emmy Awards, 91, 92. What is that job? How did you get that? And what do you do when you're the musical director of an award show like that? The first show I got to do be music direction was Robert Townsend's Partners in Crime that he did. He did five, his movie, Hollywood Shuffle, which... I got to score because he knew my records. So I got to score that movie. And after that, he was offered five comedy specials from HBO and asked me to be music director of those. The director of that show remembered me. And years later, the Emmys came up and they, he and the music director had some kind of falling out or something like that. And he called me and said, do you want to do the Emmys? I'm thinking he's calling me and probably 50 other people. And I said, sure, uh, I'm sure you're calling a lot of other people, but I was, no, no, I'm not calling anybody else. I'm calling you. Do you want to do it or not? I said, yeah, sure. 
I'm glad I watched as much television and as much uh, variety shows as I had watched as a kid, because then I knew what to do. I knew what the what the job involved. It involved lots of different music, organizing play-ons and playoffs for people. And that show, you got to play every theme of the winning shows. Now, this was before the technology allowed for you for us to, you know, for them to just pre-record and punch the right button. You had to play them. Right. So we had to pre-record all of this, th- these different themes, and then we had to be there live to play for the acts that were on the show. It's a lot. And uh, I was in charge of all of that. And the year that I got it, they decided they weren't going to use a full orchestra. Oh, really? <laughs> so now I've got to try to take this elephant and shove it into, you know, a, a thimble. But the learning experience from doing that and doing other things allowed for me to bring all of this together. I had been in the studio playing, doing studio work anyway, so I knew a lot of other, uh, you know, competent and capable musicians who knew me that in that way. And so it was really about being, it was really about organizing what had been just all of these different observations and connecting these dots in order to do a job, which I, I understood what the, what the magnitude of it was. And that, because of the because of the magnitude of that show and in doing it several times, I was able to get other shows uh, also. Right. And you got the Grammy Awards 2004, five and six as well. Mm-hmm. So that's like music directing of the music show. So that's that's about as music as you can get. Right. <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of a lot of moving parts to that one. But again, I had there were lots of shows, you know, that I had music directed at BET specials for Stevie Wonder, specials for Aretha, specials for uh, Smokey Robinson. So I had a lot of practice in being able to organize what needed to happen and be able to get it done. So when you're doing the Grammys, is that fun? Is it high pressure? Is it both? Both. The fun is because in most cases, at least then, there was still the music director still did have some creative input as far as how something might come across and translating what it was that they thought they wanted into what would need to happen in order to get that result where it was a musical thing that was concerned or, or working with particular artists. That was great because so many of the artists already knew me and, or there were musical ideas that had been discussed and then I had to translate them into, okay, so what do we have to actually do in order to pull that off or in order for that to work? So it was a, it was a lot, it was a lot of that, you know, which was good, but you know, it, 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 the, the bigger the show, the more, the more voices there are, the more input there is. And, 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 and sometimes that makes it a little bit, a little tougher. So the pressure is to try to remain calm, even though everybody around right. you is spinning like this, you know, and understandably there's a lot at stake. Yeah, and it's live, so you know a lot of people watching. Yeah, you try not to think about that too much. <laughs> right. <laughs> was Will Smith's "Men in Black" the first time one of your songs got sampled? Well, that's not really a sample. Okay. So it's, not, it's, the, 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 it's always used that, as an example of a sample, but yeah, I wasn't sure if it was either. So uh, that is an example of of maybe a new, the extreme definition of new use because forget me nots had been used in the motion picture big right trampoline scene and then when 
Will Smith, by the time it got to Men in Black, which is, you know, a decade later, the music was the basis for his new vocal. Right. But the melody is the same. That's the track. That's the actual track. I think they slowed it down a little bit or whatever they did. So by the time um, it got to that, you know, it was uh, they tried to call it a sample, but it sat on somebody's desk for a while. And I guess by the time they got around to clearing the sample of, uh, you know, it was clear that this is not a little piece. This it's is the whole track. This is the track. And so that negotiation became something different than a sample that that became okay, this is a copyright issue and we're either going to share in this in the, in the writer's credits and publishing credits of this. We're going to share half or you have to take it out. So we knew they weren't going to take it out and so yeah, did they. So this was one of those situations where they were just trying to, you know, put it in just like that because they offered me $2,000 as a one-time fee. Yeah, and you're like, no. And we can, no, I don't think so. But the idea of sampling in terms of other things since that time, now it, there is a practice in terms of what to do. And remember, it was kind of new at that time. So people were, it was kind of wild west for a minute where people were just kind of doing stuff and hope you didn't hear it. But see, now they ask permission usually in advance and you work out terms and licensing terms and, and things like this. So that, uh, at least in my case, that I haven't had a, another issue like that in a long time. So Men in Black was the first time your music was repurposed for another song. Yeah, I think that was the first time, especially something like that, because the movie, that franchise, you know, became huge. And, sure. you know, his records when he had a best of Will Smith and it's on there. And then the, the motion picture soundtrack went, you know, quadruple platinum. So it's that any TV commercials or anything like that that came that came from it. So were you happy that your music could have this second life in this sampling, repurposing, borrowing, whatever you want to call it, world that came up? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think any composer hopes that their that their music catches in such a way that it has the capacity to keep moving and keep inspire other things. It's really good, I think, uh, in most cases, pretty uh Pretty incredible that, you know, of all of the things that they're out there for people to listen to or to try to or to be inspired by or to take from that they, you know, would choose something like that. The only times it gets to be a drag is if somebody repurposes it or uses it or tries to sample it and their intention doesn't have anything to do with the feel of the of the song. So if I have turned stuff down, if people want to use so, so many bars of a particular song and their lyrics are not appropriate or they're offensive i'll say no so you actually vet this stuff it's not just sort of an automatic if you use this it's going to cost this you, you want to make sure that it's represented in a way that you that represents you yeah i do like george michael fast love that that uses forget me nots also mm -hmm. yeah what was what was that discussion that was weird did he call about you up well he didn't but his <laughs> These people call my people. <laughs> and, you know, the conversation was, hey, thinking we're, we're going to we would like to release this. It sounds like this. How do you feel about it? It takes from this, blah, blah, blah. And you have the chance to say yes or no. And then, you know, negotiate what, what's going to happen from there. Have any of these samples made you think differently about the music that you wrote? Uh, 
Um, when you say differently, do you, what do you mean? Just kind of giving you a different perspective on it. Like, oh, you know, like they pulled out this one. I'm always amazed at what they pull out and what and then how how creative they are in terms of how they use it. Some people have turned stuff around backwards. Some people have used part of one thing and then part of another part of the tune and put those two together. Kirk Franklin did a, a masterful job, I thought, with uh, using Haven't You Heard. And now the song that came from that is like, a, a you know, a contemporary gospel standard. You know, so again, taking the whole thing and utilizing it in such a way that it inspires another kind of uh, take on it is, is is really cool. Have you ever tried to sample someone else's work and craft a song around it? No, I haven't done that yet. You're like, I got my own stuff. <laughs> I got my own stuff to to work on. <laughs> I'd seen an interview with you about a year ago where you talked about making a new album. Are you doing that? I have bits and pieces of one of, uh, you know, some, I'm always trying different things, you know, and, and I probably will get to it at some point to do another one. But of late, the latest requests for me are we want to see you do these songs. We haven't seen you do them. And we want to hear the ones that we are listening to and sampling from and that we love. But we haven't seen you do them. So my latest thing is to try to get out more and start playing those songs. Live. Live. What's great about that is that, you know, it reacquaints you with the people that are listening. So I've been in audience. I've been on stage and watched people seven and 70 singing the same lyric. Nice. Very humbling. Well, tell, tells me a lot, informs me a lot in, in terms of when I do do a, another uh, recording, you know, or put something else out, you know, that that kind of information informs, you can't help but inform you. The other thing about uh, also doing a, another uh, record is, you know, I, all those records were done under a completely different paradigm. So now when you do a record now, you have to think of it about, okay, this is what it's going to be. This is what it's going to cost to be able to do the thing that I want to do. And how am I going to, what do I want to do in terms of its marketing and so on and so forth? If you're not, you know, if you're not signed to a label or where there's somebody else sharing in part of the partnership that having a record deal right. is. Notice I said partnership because it wasn't like, even back in the day, there was specific things that were happening. Our piece, we got our piece of the pie, but it was a small piece of the pie because it, the responsibilities of other things fell to the record company. Those things are gone. So the partnership that you have now might not include, you know, a certain kind of artist development or a certain kind of, you know, tour help or a certain kind, you know, you don't, these things are, are a lot different now. And that investment is different now. Right. And you could put them on Bandcamp and people can download them or stream them. If you want to put out a record, then you're going to have to park your album behind a whole lot of other albums at the vinyl yeah, and you're not going to make any money. And if you're not, if you, if part of why you're doing it is also uh, part of, because it's part of your income stream, you want to know if you're going to put a certain amount of a certain amount in that you have the, the possibility of being right. able to, to get it back. And when you got to do, you know, 500 streams and make a dollar, <laughs> you know, so there are a lot of things that go into it. Fortunately in having, a lot of really wonderful things that I can do that are all connected and yet different iterations. You know, there's teaching, lecturing and things that I do like that. There's 
playing with other people on their stuff and what I'm doing, you know, currently to be able to get out and play more. There's the different categories of or different styles of music that I like to play that I'm able to do. There's, you know, the world of symphonic music has opened up, you know, that stuff. I've, I've wrote a lot of things between 1999 and 2002 that have now been discovered in the, and are starting to get some traction with some orchestras. I'll be going to Wisconsin and to record in the Wisconsin chamber orchestras recording one of my works soon. And, you know, all these kinds of things are starting to now to now happen. So I got plenty to do. Right. I'm enjoying all of it because this is exactly the interconnection interactions that I wanted uh, and thought I would be good at, uh, you know, years and years ago when I was given permission to just make music and become the comprehensive musician that uh, that I wanted to be. That's it for episode 102 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Patrice Russian for opening our ears to so much great music and providing the insights to make us appreciate it even more. The British label Strut has recently released new masters of her Electra albums, most in double LP versions that include bonus material. These albums, Patrice, Pizzazz, Posh, Street from the Heart, and Now, are available on vinyl, as digital downloads, and together in a CD set called Feel So Real, The Complete Electra Recordings 1978-1984. You can learn more about her music and activities at patricerussian.com, and find her on Instagram at patrice.russian, on Twitter at Ms. Patrice Russian, and be sure to check out her YouTube channel. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who knows what it means to work straight from the heart. I'm Mark Carroll. Please follow on Twitter and Instagram at Carol Popcast. And you can follow me as well at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Also visit carolpop.com. We can find this podcast and enter your email address so you'll hear about upcoming events and episodes. Please share this episode, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop conversation. Thanks.